0: Our guest today is Dr. Julia Shaw, who is a psychological scientist and the author of the wonderful book *The Memory Illusion*. Uh, Julia, it's great to meet you.
1: Hi, great to be here.
0: Uh, we're in the uh, the lobby of the Edition Hotel, and it's uh, it's a, a beautiful—I'd uh, say it's quite a rare, beautiful London morning. It is, it is,
1: <laughs> and the the ceiling is so high, it's it, so nice. It, it
0: is. It's a very distinguished yeah. surroundings. So, um, Julia, I'm glad we could meet, and uh, I, I've always been fascinated with this idea of memory. Uh, and I think it's extraordinary because, uh, you know, I've seen you. There's quite a bit of interest in this, not just people who follow popular psychology, but also uh, people that work for Google and people who work in tech and build AI. So mm-hmm. what do you think is really leading to this this massive new interest in Way we not just remember things but remember things falsely, which is what you look at.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's everybody has a memory, so I mean, it's an inherently personal issue, I think, memory in general. Uh, But false memories, in particular, are sort of, I think, the key to understanding, um, well, why we often. Disagree about things. So, this is important for things like the criminal justice system, um, but it's also important for things like tech because I think in understanding how we get things wrong, it really helps us understand how the whole system works in general. So, how the brain works, how we process information, how we store information, and how we recall it later. Um, and so, I think that false memories really show us look, A, reality is totally your perception and it's constantly changing. So, your memories are constantly changing and they're prone to lots of different processes that can distort them. Um, but again, understanding that is something that computers right now, for example, don't really get. And I think that that's fascinating.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, we probably have the wrong metaphor when we think about memory because people think of it almost like a tape recorder. that. It's just something that you push and it, it, it takes a snapshot and, or, or a section of it and then you can recall it, but it doesn't work like that at all, does no, it? No,
1: I like to call it the brain cam theory, that you have a little camera in your brain that records what's very doing. Yeah. Um, no, it doesn't work like that at all. And I mean, if you really think about that analogy, I think that a lot of people don't actually think that. They realize that things can get distorted or at least they realize that if there was a brain cam or something similar, that you could also Photoshop along the way or that maybe other things can get lost. Um, so... Um, yeah, so the brain cam or, or video analogy or tape recorder analogy is obviously wrong. But what, what I think the better analogy is, is that memory is like a Wikipedia page, which is a quote that I actually stole from. <laughs>
0: being, the, being managed by some, some maniacs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, is that uh, it's, it's constructive, it's reconstructive. You can go in there and change it, and so can other people. And so it's this ever-changing space where things are sort of kept, But often also drift far from the original version,
0: right? And and why is that? I mean, is it not sort of encoded in a linear way? Like, I mean, what? How do you actually store things in your, in your memory when you, when you do it?
1: Well, Sartre said that we remember backwards. Um, so, the reason I like that, so Sartre's obviously a philosopher, yeah. um, and he writes about, it, it, he obviously doesn't specialise in memory, but he actually has really great thoughts about perception and reality and memory. He's got great um, thoughts
0: about many subjects. He's got
1: great thoughts about many subjects, true. Uh, but I'm always startled to see sort of how much people have sort of known about false memories intuitively, huh. um, without really understanding any of the science. Um, and so he talks about remembering backwards in that in a, when you tell a story, you start somewhere and that protagonist, usually yourself, has a purpose and a goal and things happen that make sense and it's linear. Of course, when you're thinking back, you actually are piecing it back together and it only gives it meaning because you're going backwards. Because right. I mean, where does a memory start and where does it end, right? It starts and ends wherever you've given it meaning and you can only give it meaning after the yeah, fact.
0: Right, so we, we, we retrospectively form the the, the the concept of that incident.
1: Right, exactly um, and so when you're walking someone through it and you're telling a good story, the, the person's waiting for the, the punchline and they're, they're knowing that things are going to happen. You're not talking about a random event uh, you're talking about a meaningful event usually where things are exciting and interesting and of course that's not how a lot of life is um, and a lot of these things only become meaning and exciting when you know yeah. that they're leading to some bigger, bigger thing It, it,
0: it, it also to that time dilation effect, you know, like when you're when you are young, it feels like summers last forever. It's because mm-hmm. there were so many meaningful events yeah, that absolutely. that space.
1: Yeah, so there's something called the reminiscence bias, which is that, um, especially over the age of 40, when you look back on your life, there's this sort of cross-cultural effect where people remember between the ages of 15 and about 25 the best. So they remember more memories, and they presumably remember these memories better as well. And the idea is that it's also related to something called the primacy effect, So the first time you experience something, it's going to have a bigger impact and you're going to be more likely to remember it. (laughs) And so you're experiencing all your firsts, like your first kiss, your first job, your first... These are things that defined you and your identity. Um, And and they end up carrying a particular significance and they're remembered potentially better than other things.
0: That's probably not the top list of people's first memories between 15 to 25. (laughs) The first kiss.
1: (laughs) Speak for yourself. Um, But I mean, it also leads to trouble, right? So I mean, you see nostalgia being picked up by <coughs> certain politicians right, yes. <laughs> um, all over the world. I mean, this is happening in the UK, it's happening in the States, It's happening. it was happening yeah, in right, Canada yeah. for a while. Um, and they're sort of playing with this whole idea of the reminiscence bias. and Remember the good old days,
0: right? So, so you're saying that popul- possibly the rise of populism we're seeing around the world now could be an effect of the baby boomers now slipping into this oh, absolutely. nostalgic senility.
1: Yeah, this essentially false memory of the, the good old days, which I like to alternatively refer to as the bad old days. I mean, if you look at statistics almost everything is better now than it was about 30, 40 years ago.
0: In a weird way, I guess, we're more conscious of stuff happening in the present because of social media, and so it it feels like there are more wars, more conflicts, more bombs.
1: But everyone's always thought that. I mean, this is Aristotle used to talk about the youth and how they don't understand how, how, you know, things were different in the past and how they have no respect for their elders. I mean, this is like... It's history repeating it's itself. It's not new and yet it always feels like, oh no, but we're right. Our generation.
0: <laughs> so how how, do false, how are false memories implanted? And, and, and I know this is, this is fascinating because you call yourself a memory hacker as well. Because mm-hmm. uh, you you've actually done research and studies where you have willfully planted memories into, into subjects as well.
1: Yeah, I convince people that they did things that never happened. So
0: terrible crimes in some...
1: Not terrible crimes, but crimes. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I essentially get people to confuse their imagination and their memory. Um, and in the process, how, how I do that is by getting just by interviews. So right. you you can do this by hacking right into the brain, literally hacking with a, you know, physical instruments. Um, so going into mouse brains, for example, we can physically alter connections in the brain, and we can so you're, erase you're, you're actually remote like
0: remote rewiring there. The, you can the physically rewire, yeah. yeah. But I
1: mean. But physics, I mean, I'm currently rewiring your brain as well. I mean, your brain is constantly changing, and every impression you have is, is changing its physical structure as well. Um,
0: I, I'm starting to remember something in the woods as a child, you know, being <laughs> led, you know, by these, you know, you're saying that's not real. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I didn't put it there. <laughs> huh.
0: um, but, but, I mean, how, I mean, I guess we all grew up watching movies like um, uh, the Total Recall and, mm-hmm. you know, it, eternal sunshine the spotless mind so there's this kind of idea that memory was this malleable thing in the future that you could reprogram. Sci-fi,
1: it's very sci-fi. It's very sci-fi, yeah. yeah. Which I quite like about it because but you
0: What we are saying is you don't need all this technology to actually subtly no. influence people's memories. I don't
1: know. No, no. um, I mean, the, the biggest tool that we have to influence each other is our is our mouths um, and, and our ears. So essentially, talking to people has the potential to gravely change how they see the world um, and that's the same for, for their own experience, their own narrative, their own lives. So if you come from a position of trust where someone thinks that you know something about them that they don't remember about themselves and they believe you and they think you have evidence to to support that they're going to go along with things like maybe an imagination exercise when you know a memory expert sitting across from you saying oh my god do you want me to help you recover this lost memory what do you say of course
0: and and how do you do that like what is the process if you were going to take me through to actually remembering something I didn't have and how how would you do it?
1: Well so the first thing I do is contact someone you know who knows you very well like your parents Um, so in my case I was implanting memories in people so these were adult participants but the memories took place between the ages of 11 and 14 and in these scenarios what I did is I asked the parents for information about this time in their lives and the idea was that Um, They'd be suitable informants, and so if they said um, this did or didn't happen, that would be a decent, you know, so police contact in particular. If you're 14 years old and you get in trouble with cops, the police will call your parents. Um, It doesn't just sort of go unnoticed generally. Um, Obviously, lots of things happen when we're teenagers that our parents don't know (laughs) about, but this is probably not one of those things. Anyway, so I contact them, informant, they know stuff about you, you know that I'm contacting them. Um, you come in, I filtered you to have making sure that you haven't experienced a target event and you have experienced at least one emotional event, right. you come in, you know it's a an emotional memory study. Um, we talk about an emotional memory that's accurate. You've gone for 20 minutes, then I introduce the false one. And I say, remember that time you assaulted someone with a weapon and the police called your parents and you were in your hometown, I know the name of the hometown, and you were with your best friend, Sue. So, so there's
0: enough pieces there that people uh, accept the possibility that it might be authentic. Exactly.
1: So it's it's planting a seed of, of acceptance and of doubt, potentially also in their own memory, like that they, that they have forgotten it. Um, and then saying, you know, hey, you know it's, I have all this information from your parents, I'm sure this happens, I have this detailed account, do you want me to help you recover it? Um, and then everybody says yes. It's obviously the illusion of choice in that situation. And then over three interviews, by just getting people to repeatedly picture the event as it could have been, it slowly becomes, it, it sort of goes from what could have been to what would have been to what was. So it becomes increasingly more plausible. I'm going in and saying, good, it looks like it's coming back. The person thinks they're accessing a memory, but what they're really doing is imagining stuff, they're making it up. Right. And so at the end of this this whole process, 70% in my study at least, came to say that they committed a crime that never happened, and they reported at least 10 details, and they told me, some of them gave me 50, 60, 70, 100 details. You know, why they were there, what was going on, who they were assaulting. Um, And it's really fascinating, because these things look real from the outside and they apparently, according to self-reports, feel real to the participants as well. well
0: what I found extraordinary about the, the research you did is that people actually build up a lot of detail beyond what you gave them.
1: Oh yeah. So, oh, yeah. so they...
0: there, there was this whole process of, of kind of imaginative construction. Uh,
1: oh yeah. I'm and building I, fiction. Yeah. yeah. I,
0: I, I, and I kind of wonder, you know, why is why is that? I, I mean, what what is it about our memories that are actually so sort of linked? to our imaginations
1: yeah so our memories are (laughs) our imagination or memories are really hard to distinguish so the same brain cells the same networks generally that are responsible for imagination are also responsible for remembering or reconstructing things that we've experienced which makes it difficult if you're hijacking things that we often um, use as cues to differentiate the two so often you can tell the difference oh i just thought about this or i actually experienced this but the, the reason you can do that is usually because one is multi-sensory and the other is not. So one, the real experience, you can hear things, feel things, taste things, see things, smell things. There's there's a much more complex memory for that than there is for I just thought about it. But the problem is if you get people to imagine those multi-sensory pieces, so think about what it would have smelled like, think about what it would look like, think about what it would sound like, you're taking that process and you're making the fake one look the same as the real one, and suddenly it becomes impossible for the brain to reliably distinguish between the two.
0: Is this the brain's way of being more efficient, or like kind of a form of image compression? That you know, <laughs> rather, I mean, I know people with eidetic memories can actually just sort of well, we'll, we'll, we'll get, get on back that. back to that. But but it's it's almost like they're they're recording something more close to the brain camp, but for the rest of us when you recall a memory, it's almost like you're accessing your imagination system.
1: It is what you're doing. I mean, and every time it's different. So I mean, if you even just record yourself, recalling the same story a number of times, um, it's going to change slightly every single time. And that's just you. That's without any other inputs. That's without a memory hacker like me coming in and intentionally (laughs) distorting things or or family sharing details that you don't remember. Every
0: time you actually remember something, you're actually altering it.
1: Yeah, it's called retrieval-induced forgetting. So you you change it, but you also forget pieces and you add pieces. Oh, Um, So so you actually
0: forget things when you remember them.
1: Yeah, which sounds uh, counterintuitive. Uh, it's one of the newer-ish findings within the memory, memory research field. Um, and it's, it shows that because every time you access a memory, you're accessing... So a, a memory in the brain is a network of, of brain cells. Um, and this, this network gets activated every time we recall a memory, and it becomes totally pliable. So it becomes essentially easy to change again, and it does change. And so it's, like, it's like kind of like playing telephone. Like you, you tell a story and you, you kind of pass along a secret to the neighbor and the neighbor to pass it on to their neighbor um, and it changes in the process. And sometimes the end result is similar, but sometimes it's totally different. Um, and so that's what you're doing with yourself. You're essentially playing a game of telephone with yourself every time you remember something.
0: You had an issue with identity memory.
1: Identic memory. Uh, I have an issue with photographic memory as well. So photographic memory. Well, what's the difference? Oh. <laughs>
0: okay. So this is a level advanced beyond me. Oh my
1: goodness. Uh, so photographic memory, uh, most people would suggest think about is perfect memory. Yeah. Whether they th- think of it as perfect visual memory or perfect memory in general, either way, it doesn't exist. Right. So there's no person on the planet that we've discovered who has perfect memory for scenes or perfect memory for the world. Um, There are people who have exceptional memory, there are people who can fly over cities and draw the entire skyline pretty close to accurate, but even they add or confabulate sort of make up details um, that maybe weren't quite right or leave out things. Um, So even the people with the best sort of photo-like memory in the world aren't getting it perfect. Um, More importantly, eidetic memory is something that exists, but it only exists in, in young children. And actually, having eidetic memory, it means that if you see something, you close your eyes, and you essentially still have the picture yeah. of what you were just looking at, and you can just you can access it quite perfectly—not quite perfectly, not totally perfect, but, but almost perfectly—and um, you can reproduce it quite accurately as well. The thing is, eidetic memory in young children. Only exists for a couple of minutes, and if your kid has eidetic memory, it's not a cause for celebration. It's actually usually a sign of de- developmental problems, um, because oh. our brain's not supposed to. Do. Our brain's supposed to be able to integrate and, and move on essentially, rather than capturing a snapshot.
0: Right, because you can't interpret the snapshot, right?
1: Yeah, and it, and it still decays. Right. Um, but it it just it's a process that's misfiring rather than working appropriately. So the idea of photographic memory being a good thing is actually a mis- sort of a well, a myth. Um, a photographic itself doesn't exist in eidetic. If your kid has it, don't celebrate. Be, be worried, go see, go see your GP. So, so is the act of
0: actually forgetting and maybe even tampering with our memories a key part of the way we function?
1: Yeah. So I mean our memories work the way they do for a reason. And I, I don't hugely like evolutionary arguments, but obviously there is the, the basic foundation of a lot of stuff exists in our bodies or works the way it does because we've survived that way. Um, and one of the biggest things that humans are capable of that other animals aren't capable of to the same degree is problem solving and intelligence and creativity and those processes are only possible because our brains are flexible and because we can learn and relearn information and we can reconnect things that we already have in the brain in new ways and so that's what your memory is doing as well is it's just the same thing is happening, is you're reconnecting pieces that are there, and sometimes you're reconnecting them in a way that you didn't experience.
0: So you almost need that abstracted process where you get the loose sense of things as opposed to the, sort of the hard connections. Of...
1: Exactly. And I mean, your memory's good enough. I mean, you're generally remembering mostly things that kind of happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that you're not remembering the specifics quite often, or the, the exact details. And that's okay, because you don't need that most of the time. Um, I mean, in a criminal investigation, it's a bit more tricky because you need exactly those specifics. Um, but to survive, psh, most of the time.
0: Well, I can see why the AI and the computer people are interested. Because I mean, there's a whole new branch of computing, of sort of, in a way, bad computing, where it's sometimes better to be more approximate or not specific mm-hmm. in order to solve certain kinds of problems. Yeah. But the AI guys must be interested, I guess, in trying to teach systems to sound more human.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, so I was talking to someone in New Zealand who um, actually worked on Lord of the Rings. And he was working on on the skin. So the skin of the creatures that were, you know, like, Gollum, was that one of them? I think that's one of them. Uh, Um.
0: I think it's so nice the way you're pretending you haven't watched all the films.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not a nerd, not at all. Um, But he was trying to get skin to look hyper-realistic, or at least realistic. Um, And in doing that, what became clear, I think, to animators um, and to, to programmers was that they needed to... To figure out how skin is imperfect because perfect skin doesn't look real no it's not real. and
0: it fails the uncanny valley effect
1: exactly exactly um, and so they're trying to introduce imperfections and so they' but they're still trying to you can't just introduce random imperfections it still needs to be in a way that is human and so that's where he started getting interested in sort of imperfections and in, in systems and in human um, body parts if you will and so he, he then also went okay well it's not enough to know the skin I need to know the muscles because that's what makes it realistic, so it's makes the expression realistic. And so then he reproduced the, the, the muscles underneath the face. And then he's like, well, that's not enough. I need to reproduce the brain. And this was led to a project called Baby X in New Zealand, which is an AI, which is a baby that learns. Um, and he essentially went through the memory literature in particular and was piecing together how memory systems work. And what's startling about Baby X is you can actually take the face off the baby, if you will, and see the brain as if it were lives. So you can see the processes light up.
0: It's like a neural network.
1: It's like a neural network. And he was absolutely fascinated. I was fascinated by his work. Because I'm like, wow, we have the fact that this AI can learn anything. It means that we're closer to understanding memory than maybe memory scientists thought. Right. And on the other hand... But,
0: but it needed to learn to forget.
1: Exactly. Well, not or... just to forget, but to get it wrong. Uh... And so that's where he was interested in my, so there was, in my right. work, it was sort of this reciprocity. Did he create
0: like a Julia Shore algorithm? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, not. no, but it, we were definitely talking, we were talking about false memories in this environment and sort of this AI needed to get things wrong the way humans get things wrong, because that shows you the flexibility, the creativity, the actual artificial intelligence, right. rather than just reproducing what it's learned.
0: That, that's interesting because, you know, it, it, sometimes when they've, people have approached the digital brain concept.
1: So when they were asking me about artificial intelligence and when we were having this sort of exchange about um finding the imperfections it was really uh yeah fascinating exchange and trying to sort of understand each other's worlds and it really shows the potential connection between well sort of physical human sciences and tech
0: right and you know there's been a long history of people trying to hack their memory for positive reasons Mm -hmm. i think about you know, I, I, I used to study uh, classical literature, and I was always amazed. You know, to hear the stories of the orators walking through physical places, creating locky or mm-hmm. you know, memory palaces mm-hmm. as a way of trying to. Uh, remember more stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm more the girl of the, the existential crisis opening all the questions girl. <laughs> the what is real. Um, but you're, you're right, I mean, it does allow you to hack your memory for better as well. I think understanding how a system works in general is generally going to give you um, the tools you need to potentially maximize its usefulness to you. And so that's the same with memory. And so understanding that memory is flexible and understanding that memory is association, what you can do is you can harness that and create more Associations, So you can make more complex memories. Right. And one of the ways you can do that is, you're right, is with the method of Loki where you're... Or memory palettes where you have a physical space that you remember like a house or a room um, and you walk through your house and you, let's say you want to remember a grocery list, you leave things along the way. Right. And so what you're doing is you're creating... Let's say you, you... And you leave things in a weird way usually. So you have... Like so you so step the, on the oranges The more striking
0: the The more striking you know, the, the, the better,
1: exactly. Um, so you leave the... The, the oranges, you're stomping on the oranges on the way in, and then on the left you've got ketchup all over the wall, and then <laughs> you, you walk over and zucchini hits you in the face. Um, and so what you're doing is you're trying to create a much bigger memory trace because you're now visualizing things and you're engaging in sort of relationships and interactions with objects that you're trying to remember or things you're trying to remember. Right. Which makes it easier to access later. Right.
0: Uh, I could see the, the significance of a lot of this work for the criminal justice system because. Mm-hmm you know so much of it's based on witnesses recollections Mm -hmm. and 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 often you know we're very moved by someone's level of detail in their remembrance Mm -hmm. Um,
1: yeah well things that sound very complex and sound very confident um sound sound real and the problem is that unfortunately that's not always the case and so things that are incredibly complex and multi-sensory and you know someone says a lot of confidence it didn't necessarily happen that way so you can have that poor false memory. And so for the criminal justice system, that's really <laughs> problematic because you've got a witness who's pointing at someone saying, that's the guy who did it. And it's possible that that's not the guy who did it. But the person is saying in such a compelling manner that it's impossible almost to disregard that. Right. And yet we know that witnesses often get things wrong. We know that even for faces, even for critical details, witnesses, suspects, and victims all have false memories, potentially.
0: You know, when they try to discredit a witness or sort of bring in someone to, uh, talking about him personally rather than. His system of memory yeah. retrieval. I mean, do you think, do, do they are they bringing in memory experts now to, so, to discredit the possibility of that memory?
1: Um, to discredit is the wrong word, I think. But I think, so I work with the courts and I work yeah, in the UK as an expert witness quite a lot. And what my role is, is to educate. Oh, you want the... to speed
0: dial every defense lawyer? And...
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should be. Um, but my, my role is to educate the court as to how memory does and doesn't work. Um, and that's true, but that's true for everybody involved. So I mean, you could also argue that the. I could work for either side, technically, because, I mean, the defense's memory could also be called into question, or someone they're bringing in as a, as a counter-whatever witness. Um, so, I mean, it's important, I think, for people to understand how memory works. And they don't. And I think when it's not included in, in a trial, it's usually because Judge the judge in particular thinks that they know everything about memory, which is just not the case. I mean, this judges also often think that they can spot a liar, which is also, I mean, evidence clearly suggests that we suck at spotting liars. (laughs) Um, And a false memory isn't a lie, which is really important as well. So it's even less likely to have sort of identifying features, because the person isn't even intentionally trying to fabricate it
0: there's some really interesting research about the use of algorithms and things for sentencing and in the criminal justice system but also you know to help us make smarter decisions as mm-hmm. humans and, and i and i you know i guess when i've read this before it's always been that you know you ask an expert his opinion on something um, and he or she will say something completely different depending on what day you ask them mm-hmm. um, unlike an algorithm yeah. but there's, i hadn't realized there's another side to this which not only would they make a different decision, but the way they would remember elements of their experiences is also flawed.
1: Yeah, it's flawed, and I mean processes. So when I'm when I come in to look at any a particular case, when I'm going beyond just educating the the court, I look at the the process through which a memory arose. And so if you know if. if therapy was involved or policing, uh, police interviewing was involved. And I can look at it, I can say, look, this looks like my research where I intentionally implant memories, or it doesn't look like it. And you can say there's red flags here or there aren't. Hmm. And so it's it's really the process that you want to look at um, to decide whether or not problems may have arisen um, in in how this memory was recalled. Uh,
0: The AI people might be trying to make their computers more a sense more human by making them more imperfect but is there a way that we can make ourselves more like machines and make our <laughs> memories more accurate?
1: I don't think we want to be more accurate or more really? like machines. No, again I think that the, the because, fiction because that is memory is a beautiful thing and I think that um, we often remember our lives as better than they actually were and I think that's generally a good thing. I mean there's actually unfortunate research suggesting that depressed people are more accurate at remembering their, their past so oh, right. accurate memory might actually be um, a bad thing.
0: So if it, we now collect so much more memory aids in the sense that people take so many more photos and recordings. You're right,
1: and that, that I think is good. So I, I'm a big advocate generally for social media, although that has its own problems, of right. course. Um, but independently recording things that you really want to remember is really important. So the, it's also... But so do
0: they aid in false memory?
1: They, well, social media can, because if you read someone else's Twitter, um, um. and you're then maybe synthesizing their details and thinking that they're your own, um, you can essentially, now anyone can hack your memory uh, unintentionally so
0: actually using Facebook is, is actually inviting people to have your memory in the sense that they're shaping your own recollection of shared events
1: they're doing that and you're doing it yourself as well because you're sharing only quote shareable things so things that you think will get the most likes things that you think will look at on social media not necessarily things that are actually the most important to you Right. and so you're already maybe intentionally or unintentionally distorting your own life often for the better though again so this might not always be a bad thing um, but it's certainly a distorting effect
0: yeah, no, I, I, I'd i often wondered the the real impact of, you know, when, when Facebook sends you like 10 years ago on this day.
1: Oh my goodness, time hop is right. my, one of my least favorite things. It also, I like to call it that, algorithmic that, that, cruelty. Right, that, that,
0: that is a direct intervention to uh, in your brain. I mean, because it, it basically not only reminds you of things that may have been different, but it shows you just how much younger you
1: were. <laughs> <laughs> well, that and also it'll pick up, pull up like your dead cat. I mean, it, it shows you things <laughs> that maybe got likes at the time, but maybe are really painful now. And obviously the, the program is... The algorithm itself doesn't know that because no. it doesn't filter that. Well, Facebook's
0: way. run experiments on this. I mean, they deliberately they showed people um, sad or unhappy information to see if they've become more. I know the guy who ran
1: that study. Um. Right. So,
0: what's, what's 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 the inside story? Was he was he sadistic or was it just no, no, accidental? No.
1: No, he's not sadistic. He's just someone who um, wanted to... I mean, uh, Facebook does this all the time. I mean, they right. test out all kinds of ideas. So you may as well do some that are psychologically informed that might actually get you some information about how humans work. Um, I think it's a good thing. I think it's... I mean, you've already signed away your life when you've accepted the terms, <laughs> terms and conditions of Facebook. Um, you think you have privacy? Nice try. Um, you think you have control over what's shown on your feed? Not really. So, I mean, that's something you've already... It's a contract you've essentially implicitly agreed to. Um, may as well do studies that actually teach us stuff
0: right so we we should just uh, be happy and and accepting that not only do we not remember things correctly but that there's going to be people increasingly using technology that will influence and shape our own memories
1: yeah I mean that's what advertising essentially is (laughs) as well Um, but you're right so I mean but, but understanding more and more about it also does give you some tools to to sort of guard against having your memories hacked so I think It's a good thing that our memories are flexible and creative and that false memories exist, um, but we still need to be cautious.
0: Where do you think this could go in the future? I mean, do you think we can, in a way, almost weaponize this memory imperfection to create technology that will allow us to have more control over how we shape our own memory?
1: Weaponized is always a dramatic word, Um, certainly, I mean, all science can be weaponized, um, and this is no exception, and obviously, I mean, things like propaganda and brainwashing, and I mean, false memories have been used in the past, and will continue to be used um, to structure things in maybe ways that we don't want them to, or to distort reality intentionally, um, even on a societal level. Um, But in a positive way. In a positive way, rather than weaponizing, which generally implies negative. Positive way, yeah, I mean, we can delete bad experiences, So I mean, by understanding that we can distort stuff and put stuff into the brain this is
0: the link to therapy right
1: yeah it is it is um we're also learning i know you're
0: a big fan of freud
1: <laughs> i read it a post once um i wanted to call it 10 things i hate about freud but uh my my editor wouldn't let me so it's, <laughs> it's called nine things you didn't know about freud <laughs> but anyways not one my of the
0: 10th the, the, the sequel one being that you hate freud <laughs> yeah
1: no, not, not, not secret. Um, yeah, the man, I, I think I called it the, the list about the man I love to hate. Right. Anyways, but Freud, why I don't like Freud is because, a, he wasn't a scientist. He was rejected from winning the Nobel Prize a number of times because, quote, his work was of no proven scientific worth. <laughs> um, and he's the father of regression and repression. So he's the father of a lot of memory theories that are just wrong and have caused a lot of harm. So psychoanalysis, I take with a huge grain of caution. Um, but where we're, we? where were we talking about we're talking applications, about the... yes, um, therapy. So I think that in the future, and already we are hacking memories for the better. So we are getting rid of phobias um, by using even just heart pressure medication that um, we know changes how we can access memories.
0: Breaking the connections, basically. Breaking
1: connect. Well, making it more, even more pliable than it already right. is. Um, and there's people who physically go into mouse brains and. and know bugger around and 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 cut things and add things positive memories and negative memories so especially for trauma I think the application that we are going to be seeing and we already are seeing is that we're taking away the emotional part of a a memory the negative emotional part so you can because it's there's nothing inherently traumatic to an event but what is problematic that can have lasting repercussions is the fear is the anxiety is the, the, the bad stuff and so what we're seeing is that we can cut out the bad stuff and leave the rest of it intact
0: well, Dr. Julia Shaw, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very
1: much. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com betweenworlds.